Okay, let's get started then. It's going to be a nice and intimate round, as you can see. On behalf of the Oxford Centre for Life Writing, it gives me very great pleasure to welcome you here to this half-day colloquium on life writing and female celebrity. Hello. <laughs> I was just going to say, we're going to have a nice intimate round here, so uh, obviously lots of space for questions and uh, for um, engagement. Uh, so my name is Sandra Meyer. I'm uh, a visiting scholar here at the Oxford Centre for Life Writing, currently based at the University of Zurich, and I'm really delighted to see uh, uh, still quite a few of you here for an event that surely the regulars amongst you know is part of a conversation that we've been keeping going here at Wolfson for quite a while and that is dedicated to exploring the nexus of life writing and notions of fame and uh, celebrity. It's actually something that goes back to a conference that was hosted here at Wolfson back in 2015, co-organised by the lovely Oline Eaton, who I'm really pleased to say is joining us today as one of our speakers. Now, and since then, the theme has really turned into a research strand that is marked by a series of termly events, workshops, symposia, and uh, that also has inspired this term's headline series of Oxford under uh, the title of Fame and Shame. Now, both life writing and celebrity, as phenomena, as practices, and as areas of research, have a number of shared concerns. I mean, they're certainly both very much concerned with notions of intimacy, authenticity, performativity. They're both, of course, concerned with exploring the fuzzy boundaries between the public and the private, agency and appropriation, myth-making and revelation. And in this day and age, when of course there's much debate about a possible post-feminist backlash, and also when on an almost daily basis we're being confronted uh, with disturbing media stories about the uncomfortable entanglement of celebrity, power and gender in the entertainment industry, but not just in the entertainment industry, in politics, in the arts, it's definitely worth taking another close look at the gender dynamics of celebrity and how it affects the reading and the writing of female lives in different historical periods, um, media and genres. It's certainly also an issue that I found is crucial to my own work, my own project which deals with the intersections of literary celebrity and politics and it becomes very obvious here that women perceive the cultural capital uh, of celebrity is very much a kind of double-edged sword. I mean, one that can be incredibly empowering, but also that at the same time can be undermining and also severely disabling. And these ambiguities are central, for instance, to their self-presentations. Um, as in the case of Harriet Martineau, who in the mid-19th century, writing in the third person, actually composes her own obituary, mind you, 20 years before her death. And uh, it's, a, it's actually a quite a striking document because it kind of reveals these ambiguities and it strikes the reader as a rather odd and almost a schizophrenic conflation of um, authorial self-assertion, self-promotion even, but then, of course, also a kind of ironic self-deprecation and almost self-effacement. I mean, both emphasising and downplaying 
her authorial successes, her achievements as an author, both acknowledging and very much also defying the need to live up to a kind of culturally constructed ideal of femininity. So that's something that uh, I've very recently come across in my own work here. So the goal of today's colloquium is really to contribute to an ongoing and an important conversation that looks at this complex entanglement of celebrity and gender politics, and very much specifically about uh, the cultural values that are at work in the representation and the consumption of female celebrity lives and identities. And for this purpose, we've gathered what I think you will agree is a, a star-studded lineup of biographers, scholars, and creative writers. In many of those cases, um, the boundaries between these roles are quite distinctly overlapping, as you will see. Uh, some of them are really pioneers of celebrity studies, and the biographical subjects that they will be looking at are as diverse as an 18th century imposter, a 19th century literary giant, and a contemporary pop singer slash actress slash artist. Also, we've got a very broad spectrum of themes that will be uh, covered here. There will be much talk, of course, about the representation of celebrated women's lives in biographical practice, in commercial biography, um, uh, but also in fiction. Then, of course, there will also be the theme of the impact of scandal and notoriety on women's life narratives. Um, there will be talk about the complex relationship between women's lives and also notions of merit, of achievement, of talent. Yeah? And, of course, then, what I think will be very interesting is this very thin line between on- and off-stage celebrity performance, which, of course, ties in with uh, our conference poster once more, the genius work of Ruth Scobie, who's chosen the image of Betty Davis impersonating Sarah Siddons as the tragic muse. And, of course, this will wonderfully tie in with uh, Mary Lockhurst's paper about the... Uh, um, about celebrity actresses playing real-life celebrities on stage and screen. Right, so as we can see, there's uh, an afternoon, a very exciting afternoon ahead of us that will leave us with lots of food for thought and discussion. And now, uh, I really have to say that I could not be more delighted about the fact that this half-day colloquium will be opened with a keynote by someone who comes to the topic of life writing and female celebrity from a number of different angles, uh, including those of uh, a writer, uh, an academic, and uh, a literary celebrity herself, whose perspective on what it means to be a woman writer in 21st century literary celebrity culture, I think, would be uh, or would make a very fascinating topic of a keynote paper uh, itself. It's a very great honour to have uh, best-selling author Patricia Dunker here with us today, whose latest very well-received novel, uh, Sophie and the Sybil, which I've got here, is really, as she says herself, an interrogation of celebrity and what celebrity means through a biofictional engagement with George Eliot. And uh, it's a novel that currently the students in my 
neo-Victorian and Victorian authorship class are very much enjoying. Um, and uh, one of them said to me only the other week, she really liked the book, but that, and here I'm quoting her, that you could really tell that this is a literature professor writing a novel, which is the kind of uh, slightly double-edged statement that always leaves you in doubt whether it's uh, sort of meant as a compliment or a disclaimer. But then uh, uh, she, she really sort of made it clear that um, it's, we can assume it's the former, but of course it's true that Patricia is an emeritus professor of contemporary literature in the Department of English and American Studies and Creative Writing at the University of Manchester. She started her academic career at the University of Aberystwyth and in 2002 was appointed Professor of Creative Writing uh, at UEA where she taught the MA in Creative Writing until 2007 when she moved on to Manchester and her critical work very much reflects her interest in women's writing, in feminist publishing, uh, which she also describes as a political commitment that goes back to her student days. But of course, Patricia is known to a broader audience as the author of a string of hugely successful novels, starting off with her debut, Hallucinating Foucault, published in 1996, translated into 14 different languages. There's also James Miranda Barry, The Deadly Space Between, uh, The Strange Case of the Composer and His Judge, and most recently, as I pointed out, Sophie and the Sybil, subtitled The Victorian Romance. So it's really a kind of very cleverly constructed textbook example of neo-Victorianism, um, a kind of hybrid that mixes fiction, history, literary analysis, and of course, biography. Um, and this is a novel that, as I said before, is very intimately concerned with celebrity culture, uh, with fandom, also with ideas about female reading and writing. And we encounter George Eliot here at the height of her success, um, very much um, aging, manipulative, uh, famously hideous. Uh, but at the same time utterly compelling and universally worshipped by both men and women. And it is this tension and also I think very much the tension between biography and fiction that she's going to explore in her keynote today entitled The Women Who Meant to Do It, George Eliot and Celebrity Performance. So please do make her feel very welcome. Hello everyone. Um, I thank you very much, Sandra, both for the invitation to come to Wolfs and to talk to you all, and for that very generous introduction. I hope your student thought that uh, this must be written by a professor because the grammar is correct. <laughs> I would be delighted if that was the case. I have actually got a handout for you all because I'm going to talk from some of the texts, and PowerPoint then doesn't work because you see it whizzing past just as you've read about a quarter of the thing. So you've got uh, my evidence in front of you. I'll correlate watches and I'll try and keep to time. Good. I don't have to say anything about why I'm standing here talking about George Eliot because Sandra's explained that I wrote a novel which was published in 2015 about George Eliot. And it is both a novel that has a fan in it and I am a great fan of George Eliot. And fans are very dangerous people because they can be very easily disappointed. And when they are disappointed, they turn very nasty indeed. So the fan should always be treated with 
pair of tongs, really. You want to keep the fan as far away as possible. Um, I'm not the only writer who writes about fandom. One of my favourite uh, examples of encounter with literary celebrity and fan is Stephen King. Uh, if those of you who have seen Misery or watched the film or read the book. Okay, right. Can we bring up George Eliot? Here she is. I've noticed, I live in France for some, some part of the year, and I noticed that she looks astonishingly like President Macron. <laughs> she has, um, if you notice, she has a, a problem, she had terrible problems with her teeth, with really bad toothache, and she has gaps between her teeth, which you can see here, because this is a photograph. If she's very careful in portraits, always never smile in portraits, <laughs> always keep your mouth closed so that people can't see you've got a problem with your teeth. She's got a very long jaw, which is why she has her hand there. If you've got a double chin or a long jaw, you'll notice that authors very often try to look really intellectual with a hand. And she's got quite a substantial nose, which Macron has as well. I haven't yet been in touch with Mr Macron to tell him that uh, <laughs> he looks like George Eliot, but uh, shortly will do. Right, my question is the opening one of Daniel Deronda. Was she beautiful or not beautiful? And that's the opening question of her last great novel, Daniel Deronda, 1876. Now, that question need not now determine the whole course of a woman's life. But for 19th century fiction writers, it almost always did play a very central role. Jane Eyre is plain, amazingly so, but triumphs anyway. And in fairy tales, as you all know, beauty translates into power. If you are not blessed with beauty, if you're the witch, then it's a good idea to be ruthlessly intelligent. Now, George Eliot became famous, indeed celebrated, for being a very ugly, clever woman. And yet, in her last great fiction, Daniel Deronda, that's the first question she asks. Was she beautiful or not beautiful? And the situation is Deronda watching Gwendolyn Harleth at the gaming tables. And as soon as she knows he is watching, she begins to lose. Be blessed with beauty in a George Eliot novel and you will pay the price. You will lose status, reputation, freedom, virginity. And you may even end up driven to the scaffold accused of infanticide. That's the fate of Hetty in Adam Bede. But above all, and this is what I want you to remember, is this phrase, you will be a woman in error. A beautiful woman who is remarkable for her willful ignorance and her credulous stupidity. Now, the standard mid-19th century fictional plot, a narrative that also appears in Victorian poetry and painting, is that of the woman seduced and betrayed. It's the plot that George Eliot herself uses in Adam Bede, which is 1859. It's the polemical target of Elizabeth Gaskell's Ruth in 1853. In Ruth, Ruth is so innocent, so beautiful, so wonderful, it's actually quite hard to find out where and when she was seduced. You know by whom, the, the awful Mr. B. And uh, it happens somewhere in Wales, but if anyone can give me the page reference, I'll be delighted. I've read it many times. The innocence of the seduced woman is what Gaskell defends. But it's also, of course, the plot of Flaubert's scandalous Madame Bovary, which is 1856. Now, all those books are published in the 1850s. 
Now, I want to move on from the seduced and betrayed plot because it seems to me that more relentlessly sinister and so ubiquitous as to pass unnoticed in the smoke and mirrors of conventional misogyny is the woman in error. Now, the woman in error is Jane Austen's conventional plot with which she rings the changes so often that the woman in error becomes all her pretty heroines. We're urged to choose Eleanor's sense above Marianne's sensibility, and sensibility becomes a quality that practically becomes synonymous with every kind of error. Errors of judgment, errors of manners, errors of morals, errors of decorum, and above all, errors of good sense. Catherine, Mo Catherine Morland, if you go through Jane Austen, you'll see how it works. Catherine Morland, she transforms deluded error, which of course comes from reading too many Gothic novels, into a habit of mind with which she misinterprets the entire world. And even Elizabeth Bennet has her moment of truth. She's in error over Mr Wickham. And she recognises the extent of her error. She says, it's in chapter 36, she says, till this moment I never knew myself. Emma is in error throughout her story, and even Anne Elliot in Persuasion is punished over eight years for the error of listening to the counsel of her snobbish elders. And of course she is threatened with that desperate fate being an old maid, and her error ends with the bittersweet realisation that women may indeed claim to be the sex capable of loving longest when existence or when hope is gone. Hi, come in. Now, the woman in error plot is largely overlooked or taken for granted for two reasons. Firstly, it's a comic plot, as it is in Jane Austen and in many plays and operas, and it overlaps with plots of pranks and tricks. Secondly, it's a Bildungsroman plot. The woman in error grows up and learns sense, as does Jane Austen's Marianne. But it's not a tragic plot, as the seduced and betrayed plot is, because the woman in error is not a victim of anything but her own idiocy. And usually in Victorian fiction, the other characters, the omniscient narrator and the reader, all see through the heroine's delusions long before she does. Now, the implications of that are far-reaching, and I'll return to them. But first of all, to explain a little bit my own obsession with George Eliot. Well, that began at school and developed when I was at college at Cambridge. And the great ghost of English at Cambridge is, of course, F.R. Leavis. And he, I love reading very old literary criticism because it shows how mad most people who write about literature actually are. And uh, that gives me a wonderful sense that I shall join the list of the great mad. This is what he says. The great English novelists are Jane Austen, George Eliot, Henry James and Joseph Conrad. That's the opening blast of the great tradition. It goes even madder after that. Now, that great 20th century champion of literary criticism saw literature as the salvation of civilization. And he's a key person in my story because he's one of the critics who initiates the transformation of Eliot's reputation in the last 70 years. 
And I want you to notice that Leavis describes her as George Eliot. He uses her textual writing identity. No one in their right mind now talks about Charlotte Bronte as Carabelle, unless they're making a point. But George Sand and George Eliot, there's something about being called George, have defiantly retained their literary identities, their nom de guerre. And that brings me to thinking a little bit about my second historical novel in the Victorian period, which is Sophie and the Sybil, which uh, Sandra very kindly waved before us a moment ago. Uh, the first novel was James Miranda Barry, which is a novel about another Victorian celebrity, the famous colonial doctor, who was rumoured to have been, in fact, a woman. And in my own fiction, I made him into a transgender, gender transgressor, to someone who was neither man nor woman. Now, that novel was not born a neo-Victorian biographical historical fiction. Notice I've said all the words, and I'll come back to why I've done that. But it became one. I found that I was being invited to talk about it as a neo-Victorian biographical historical fiction, whereas I actually thought I was writing a rather shocking story. So it was a sensation fiction novel in my view and then became a different one. Sophie and the Sybil, however, as Sandra says, is quite self-consciously written as a neo-Victorian novel. And it's written in the awareness that this particular genre has a literary history and an associated developing body of academic criticism. So what I decided to do in that book was to settle my scores with my celebrity writer, who is, of course, known as Marianne Evans Lewis during her life in this world and never addressed or described except in letters as George Eliot. Now throughout Sophie and the Sybil I named her as Mrs Lewis, Marianne, Polly or the Sybil and all these names died with her and it's only after her death in 1880 that she sheds them all and is named the writer we remember as George Eliot. And George Eliot herself, both the woman and the writer, both of them, both aspects, both the sort of woman's two bodies, remain my heroine in this fiction, my celebrity novelist, and my woman in error. Now, I just want to think a little bit about what is the point of writing a biographical historical fiction. And I'm not using shortcuts in the terminology, because none of those words sit comfortably together. A biography is not a novel, and history is not fiction. Well, not officially. But I think we all recognise the troubled waters where the three streams overlap, and some of us think that they shouldn't do. Now, perhaps rather than thinking in terms of rules and conventions, we could investigate the question by thinking about the reader's expectations. What does a reader expect from a biography? Well, all this is contentious and we can discuss it again later, but it seems to me that a biographer has a duty to the known and proven facts of the life of her chosen subject and the historical context which surrounds that subject. A novelist's primary duty is to the reader herself and to the form of the novel that the writer has chosen to use. Now, all biographers, historians and novelists select their material, but they often do it differently and for different reasons. A biographer 
should address, indeed often relishes, inconvenient facts or contradictory evidence. Fiction can, and often does, distort or discard both the facts and the evidence, delighting some readers and infuriating others. Both history and biography attempt to provide plausible explanations to fill the gaps left in the documentary record, but a novelist invades, exploits, and enjoys the inevitable hiatus left by time. And we don't necessarily have to be plausible. All biographers speculate, and these speculations are often the most contentious pieces of interpretation. A novelist is expected to suggest and invent. But both kinds of writing explore the what-if elements of possibility. Now, can we learn anything significant about a writer's work from her life or the story of her life? Now, this is a big old argument, isn't it? Do you know anything about the, the writer herself from her life? And my answer would be yes, sometimes. The more contentious question, can we learn anything important about her work from her life? Yes, but again, only sometimes. We can make certain deductions about how she thinks. And for me, in the case of George Eliot, this is particularly interesting, because I think her work has great dramatic power, but her novels are exceedingly difficult to film and the film versions of George Eliot are always, to some extent, trash. Because her central interest is in how her characters think. And in that fascinating gap where all novelists work, which is between what the characters think and what they do. So for me, the most contentious element in biography is this. It's the pressure to produce significance and pattern. I feel the presence of Hermione Lee in this building, and this is something that's terribly important that she talks about in, in some of her essays, and I find enormously interesting, is this pressure to find meaning. Because who would put all that effort into writing a life, or indeed an autobiography, and then sum it up as a pointless parade of unpleasant, meaningless accidents with a tragic ending? Actually, you see, I think that's what most of our lives are like. And that's, we're all living in a sort of Thomas Hardy novel where, um, you know, you don't have to believe in God for him not to be out to get you. And that, I think, is, is possibly why this becomes so fraught. Because the search for a story is always the search for significance. What is going to give a life meaning, even if it's a fictional life? And fiction is the art of storytelling. And stories will always suggest a pattern and a meaning. And your reader will look for the pattern and the meaning. And believe you me, they will get mightily pissed off if they feel there is no pattern and no meaning. In fact, it then becomes very boring because there's no link between anything that happens. It's actually one of the reasons that I gave up writing, reading those travel um, writers' stories. Because what happens, it was a Paul Theroux book, I think, the Great Railway Bazaar. The most fascinating character in the whole book got on the train 
and entertained us fantastically for a chapter, and then he got off the train. And that was the end. You see, if it had been a novel, he would have had to have come back, whereas it wasn't. It was real life, so he got off, and that was the end. We never saw him again, so um, I never read any more Paul Theroux in a rage. Awful. Um, stories will always suggest the pattern in the meeting, but the woman in error plot, I'm coming back to this now, the woman in error plot usually has only one moral meaning, and we all saw it coming. We, the readers, the narrator, because in Victorian fiction you're going to always have that presence of the narrator, and the character's entourage. The silly woman saw only what she wanted to see, misbehaved, and got it wrong. So it's always a plot that denigrates women. And always getting at them intellectually. They're just too stupid to notice what's going on around them. So I want to consider now George Eliot's last great deluded heroines. That is Dorothea in Middlemarch and Gwendolyn Harleth in Daniel Deronda. Now, their ill-considered marriages form the stage and generate the scenes where their delusions and their eventual moments of self-knowledge are played out. Celia, who is Dorothea Brooks' younger sister in Middlemarch, she's the sensible one, the boring sensible one, she voices her shrewd, if cruel, judgment of Dorothea's Mr. Kasaugan very early on. She goes for his presentation, his moles, his bad table manners, and his sallow complexion, all come under scrutiny, but her scepticism concerning his great soul proves disconcertingly accurate. And that's very interesting, because Celia is set up to be the silly one. Dorothea is the clever one, Celia's the silly one. Celia sees straight through Cassabin instantly in the first dinner party. Dorothea is still there going, oh, I can be the helpmeet of a great man. Now, Eliot insists on Dorothea's metaphorical and literal short-sightedness. She falls for an old man with equally deluded scholarly ambitions. It's quite important. He's the man in error. She's the woman in error. And the reader expects and witnesses nothing but disaster. Gwendolyn Harleth's marriage to the sadistic Grand Court in Daniel Deronda has more complex origins. She is the deluded heroine. She is our woman in error. She marries Grand Court partly to secure her mother's financial future, but also to secure her own. If you look carefully at the proposal scene, I'm a great one for reading proposal scenes very carefully because proposal scenes in Victorian fiction are all alike dueling because the script is already written. You know what you're going to say. I mean, you know, if anyone's ever proposed to any of you or if you've proposed, you know what you're going to say. But what you think and why you do it is not going to be revealed. But one of the things Eliot does in that proposal scene with Grandcourt, he uses his hat as a prop. He doesn't put his hat down. If you put your hat down, you're going to stay. If you keep hold of your hat, you plan to leave. And he also brings the beautiful horse she likes riding, Criterion, in, and makes sure Criterion is a, a bribe. Criterion is standing there visible on the gravel. It's a pity she couldn't marry Criterion. Anyway. Um, she marries Grandcourt to secure her own financial future. Now, Gwendolyn is one of the least likable of, of Eliot's heroines because she is vain, inept, egotistical, and tiresome. She is the woman in error par excellence who is set up by her creator to deserve all she gets. 
Just as Celia warned Dorothea, so too Gwendolen is warned by Grandcourt's discarded mistress, the ferocious and magnificent Lydia Glasher. Look at the name, Lydia Glasher. Now, I can't resist. I'm going to read this to you. It's the first um, example on your sheets. What she does, just before Gwendolen's marriage, she has spoken to Gwendolen. She has explained who she is. She has explained that she has children by Grandcourt. She has explained why she couldn't marry Grandcourt. And she has said, I've come to ask you not to marry him because then he will marry me because he'll be shamed into it. But, of course, Gwendolyn goes ahead to marry Grandcourt and Glasher sends Gwendolyn the diamonds. These are the poisoned diamonds. It's one of the most wonderful passages in the book. And it's a message from Glasher to Gwendolyn. What I want you to notice is that she starts in the third person and then as she becomes more and more venomous in her message, she shifts to first person and then she proceeds with her curse and her threat. As you can tell from my tone, I am a great admirer of Lydia Glasher. These diamonds, which were once given with ardent love to Lydia Glasher, she passes on to you. You have broken your word to her that you might possess what was hers. Perhaps you think of being happy as she once was and of having beautiful children such as hers who will thrust hers aside. God is too just for that. The man you have married has a withered heart. His best young love was mine. You could not take that from me when you took the rest. It is dead. But I am the grave in which your chance of happiness is buried as well as mine. You had your warning. You have chosen to injure me and my children. He had meant to marry me. He would have married me at last if you had not broken your word. You will have your punishment. I desire it with all my soul. Oh, she gives me the, you know, my, I feel the hair rising on my arms when I read her. Uh, Gwendolyn imagines that she can rule Grand Court, and that is her greatest error and delusion. Dorothea, on the other hand, is a victim of her own ardent, even idealistic, naive nature. In terms of the plot of Daniel Deronda, Gwendolyn actually becomes the instrument of Lydia Glasher's vengeance upon Grandcourt, as well as bringing near destruction upon herself. Lydia Glasher is the avenging fury who crosses Grandcourt's threshold. She is the first of my women who meant to do it, in that she finally wins everything she desires, and her son inherits Grandcourt's fortune. But both of Eliot's most famous heroines, Dorothea Brooke and Gwendolyn Harlow, appear to the reader as women who are perverse and stupid. They are the women in error. We, the readers, knowing better than our heroines, sit back and watch their disastrous marriages played out, the prisons of misery from which only their husbands' deaths can release them. Um, Eliot very helpfully kills off both husbands, so that's good news. But I'd like to call your attention to a fact, which is that not all 19th century heroines pay the price for being the woman in error. The Brontes, all three Brontes, set their women free. They may be dead, but they're still free. 
never mind their errors. And Nora slams her way out of Ibsen's A Doll's House in 1879, and George Bernard Shaw created the wonderful Vivi Warren in Mrs. Warren's Profession. Now, that's an interesting play because it's about prostitution and it got banned. He wrote it in 1893, but it wasn't performed in London until 1902. And Vivi Warren is the spirited independent young woman upon whom I based my heroine in Sophie and the Sybil. And the heroine, my heroine in Sophie and the Sybil is called Sophie von Hahn. And those of you who know German will get the joke. Hahn is the German for cockerel. And Sophie is identified as the cock. In short, she's the woman with both cock and balls. And she's the woman who accuses her adored celebrity author of the worst of crimes. Her adored celebrity author being, of course, Marianne Evans Lewis, otherwise known as George Eliot. And the worst of crimes is what Vivi Warren accuses her mother, Mrs. Warren, of doing, which is this, of living one life while believing in another. Now, Eliot punishes her women in error. They are tormented, made miserable, disgraced, humiliated, and shamed. Why does Eliot punish her women characters with such sadistic relish? Now, I'm clearly hostile both to Eliot's motives and to her methods. My sexual textual politics are radically different from those of my adored celebrity author. Why, therefore, given these ferocious critical strictures, do I still keep faith with George Eliot? Well, my answer lies in her representation of female celebrity, the women who meant to do it. And the, la the last part of what I'm going to say is all about female celebrity and how Eliot uses that to get away with something that wouldn't be possible in the main ideological thrust of the book. Now, the word celebrity, I'm very interested in this, and I thank Sandra very much for um, pushing me in this direction, because I read the most wonderful book earlier this year on celebrity. It's Antoine Lilti's The Invention of Celebrity. It's terrific. Um, if you're interested in French 18th century culture, there's some fantastic sections on Rousseau, which uh, completely took me uh, down different lines. But he points out that the word celebrity took on its meaning, the meaning, current meaning, in the 18th century, which is a sus suspect and ephemeral reputation. And I'm emphasising that, that it's suspect. Um, Lilti's book in, in English is called The Invention of Celebrity. It was first published in French as Figure Publique, L'Invention de la Celebrité. And I find it quite interesting, celebrity and celebrity are very close. But Lilti points out that English possesses an interesting sequence of synonyms that are very close to celebrity, but much less suspect in their echoes. And those are fame, reputation, and renown. And reputation is even quite neutral, because you, you can have a good reputation, but when you say of a woman, she has a bit of a reputation. We all know what you mean. Fame is particularly interesting for, to me because it can seem to mean the same thing as glory, that is, being known after your death. And for me, the person who chooses glory is Achilles. Remember, he has the choice, a long, peaceful life, which I hate to say that's what I would have chosen, 
or glory. He chooses glory. And it works because I'm still talking about Achilles and his great deeds. But the crucial element in celebrity, according to one of Lil T's characters, Nicolas, Nicolas Chamfort, is this. Celebrity is the advantage of being known by those who do not know you. And I'd imagine that the word advantage is ironic here. Because that's where it seems to me the danger is. A celebrity is a person who gives up a part of themselves to their public. An admiring fan imagines that they know the famous person or the celebrity, either from their works or from their public appearances. But in fact, they do not. And Lilty points out the paradox. He says this, and I, I wrote this down and thought about it because it was so interesting. The celebrity known without being known is only a name supported by stories, not to mention fantasies. And this pertinent observation raises for me again the vexed question of biography and fiction because Eliot is my celebrity writer, my own, and she is known without being known. Now, both forms of writing, biography and fiction, seek to know their subjects and to offer an interpretation, quite literally a reading of their subject. But what can we know of George Eliot? What do I know of George Eliot? How can I imagine a life lived 200 years ago? We can read her works, her letters, her journals, contemporary reviews of her work, memoirs of her life written by others who knew her, but we can never know that person's inner life, however revealing her writing seems to be. We possess the writing, but we've lost the body that wrote. Why did she write about her women in error in the way that she did? We're forever confronted with the blank and unyielding mystery of the other person. But there are clues we can follow, and here is one of them. Now, this is where I'm going to give away quite a lot of trade secrets. Many writers include the figure of an artist somewhere in their work. The presence of this artist will always have a very sinister echo and reveal something very important about the writer's attitude to their art. And they don't have to be a writer. And they don't have to be impersonations of the writer. They are just never innocent characters. So if you look at Lily Briscoe in um, Wolf's To The Lighthouse, it will tell you an awful lot about Wolf's relationship to Mrs. Ramsay and about how Wolf saw her work. When you seek an insight into a writer's secret life, don't study the major heroines, especially if you're dealing with women writers who carry the burden of the writer's stated public ideological agenda. Look at the minor characters. For a minor character hidden in the corner of the novel will very often reveal the novelist's secret agenda, the desire or the conviction that dare not speak its name. And I'm going to finish with two examples for you. First of all, we'll go to chapter 15 of Middlemarch. Now, I'm not going to read all of this, but you do have it on your sheets. I just wanted to give you the evidence so that you had it. Uh, chapter 15 of Middlemarch contains what uh, John Blackwood, who was George Eliot's saintly publisher, how he put up with her, I don't know. 
He described the chapter as Lydgate's tremendous French adventure. And Blackwood loved Eliot's taste for melodrama, uh, which was then very fashionable. Victorian melodrama, the stage was really melodrama for the whole of the Victorian period, was it not? Um, for those of you who don't have the novel at your fingertips, this is the moment when Lydgate, who is the ambitious doctor new to Middlemarch, manifests his spots of commonness. Eliot tells us this story so that Lydgate may be better known to anyone interested in him. And she directly addresses the ambiguity of fame using exactly the same formula of words used by Lilty. And I wondered about this because it struck me. I wonder if he's actually drawing on George Eliot because she says of Lydgate that he is virtually unknown, hyphen, known merely as a cluster of signs for his neighbour's false suppositions. So it's this play of the known unknown. As a young man, Lydgate set off to study in Paris and he plans to win celebrities. So these, all those phrases suddenly came together. Known, unknown, the known unknown and celebrity by the independent value of his work. Instead, because he's a very silly young man, he falls in love with a celebrity performer, the actress Madame Law. Now, Madame Law is starring in a melodrama which requires her to stab her lover in error, thinking he's the evil duke who's trying to seduce her. And on the night in question, she really does stab her husband, who is playing the lover, to death on stage in full view of the entire audience. And Eliot says wonderfully that um, her public, who were inclined to believe in her guilt, liked her the better for it. Such was the, um, the feelings of the times. And of course, it's exactly the same now. I think the French would adore a woman who um, murdered her lover on stage and got away with it. And she does get away with it. The legal investigation ended in Madame Law's release. Now, Lydgate, who has fallen wildly in love with her, follows her south. Now, what he's done is he recreated the actress in his fantasies and now intends to marry her, never mind what happened to her first husband. I would have thought that if you saw, you know, the first guy's being stabbed to death on stage, you'd look at the woman a bit suspiciously, but not Lydgate. Off he goes in search of her. She's gone south to Provence, um, just avoiding doing a Theresa May on you. Oh. Um, I am going to read the next bit. He finds her acting with great success as Avignon under the same name, looking more majestic than ever as a forsaken wife carrying her child in her arms. Note that the child is a prop. There is no child. It's a fake presentation of femininity. And you have got this bit. It's number four on your sheets. You have come all the way from Paris to find me, she said to him the next day, sitting before him with folded arms and looking at him with eyes that seemed to wonder as an untamed ruminating animal wonders. Are all Englishmen like that? I came because I could not live without trying to see you. You are lonely. I love you. I want you to consent to be my wife. I will wait, but I want you to promise that you will marry no one else. Laure looked at him in silence with a melancholy radiance from under her grand eyelids until he was full of rapturous certainty and knelt close to her knees. I will tell you something, she said in her cooing way, keeping her arms folded. My foot really slipped. 
I know, I know, said Lydgate deprecatingly. It was a fatal accident, a dreadful stroke of calamity that bound me to you the more. Again, Laura po paused a little and then said slowly, I meant to do it. Lydgate, strong man as he was, turned pale and trembled. Moments seemed to pass before he rose and stood at a distance from her. There was a secret then, he said at last, even vehemently. He was brutal to you. You hated him. No, he wearied me. He was too fond. He would live in Paris and not in my country. That was not agreeable to me. Great God, said Lydgate in a groan of horror. And you planned to murder him? I did not plan. It came to me in the play. I meant to do it. Now, the fact, and it, it's a wonderful moment when characters start talking in italics in Victorian novels. Uh, it's always usually the moment of terrific revelation. In uh, Felix Holt the Radical, uh, the lawyer German turns to Harold Transom and says, I am your father, in italics. You know, and uh, Harold's never the same after that. The... The fact that this exchange is not narrated, this is what I want you to think about, it's not narrated but it's conducted in dialogue with minimal interpretation or intervention from the omniscient narrator and that is crucial. Eliot's women who meant to do it are neither victims of moral commentary nor of conventional judgments and they are shocking because they speak for themselves. In my view, it is also crucial that they are celebrity performers. The actress Law cannot now be separated from her representation of herself. Lydgate's commonness is as a prejudiced assumption that women can be known. He only sees the actress performing her role and he imagines the rest. She will be what he wants her to be. But in fact, Law refuses to clarify the event that has made her famous. She gives both versions of her husband's death. My foot slipped. I meant to do it. And we can believe whichever version we choose. She's performing right to the last and giving Lydgate his marching orders. She terrifies him and he flees. Now, my last woman who meant to do it is Mad after Madame Law is Al Carisi, who is the opera singer who is also Daniel Deronda's mother in Eliot's last, and in my view, greatest and most extraordinary novel. And to me, it's of immense significance that both women are artists, stage performers, an actress and a singer. Both of them pursue their ambitions and desires, regardless of the men who try to stop them. It's also crucial that neither woman is maternal. Al Carisi abandons Deronda, who's her first child, and gives him away. Both women put themselves first. And both women are characters who are neither judged nor explained by the omniscient narrator. They conduct their own relationship with the reader in direct speech. And this is crucial in George Eliot, because when George Eliot withholds her hand, and I can give you other examples from Middlemarch where she stops talking, because she's a, a narrator who talks and talks and talks and talks and talks. <laughs> she stops talking and simply gives her characters the freedom to form that naked connection with the reader. And the effect is twofold. First, the character gains force, mystery, 
and authority, an existence independent of her creator, and secondly, the character stands outside the conventional moral structures which enforce the Victorian corset of punishment and rewards. You'll often find at the end of Victorian novels you hand out punishments and rewards. He had a long life and was always very happy and many children. He died miserable and it was his fault. These women, the women who meant to do it, are unnatural women in Victorian terms and in terms of Victorian femininity. But neither of them is punished for it. Now, Daniel Deronda's mother appears right at the end of the novel. She's a deus ex machina who appears before Deronda to reveal his real identity, to tell him that he's Jewish, to pass on his grandfather's Jewish inheritance. And she insists on two things. She is not a maternal woman. She is not a loving woman. She's proud of her difference from other women and its source in her vocation as a singer and as a celebrity performer. Indeed, she actually makes it clear that what she suspects more conventional women of devious hypocrisy. And you have got this, too, um, on your um, sheets. There's a little bit about her performing, because she's, of course, performing to him. And she says, Every woman is supposed to have the same set of motives, or else to be a monster. I am not a monster, but I have not felt exactly what other women feel. This is in section 5 or say they feel, for fear of being thought unlike others. When you reproach me in your heart for sending you away from me, you mean that I ought to say I felt about you as other women say they feel about their children. I did not feel that. I was glad to be freed from you. That's a terrifying thing for a child to hear from their mother. But she goes on further. She claims a man's force of genius, and that that's what gives her the right to her freedom. Now, the genitals of genius are always masculine in the 19th century, so that what she claims in claiming the power of genius is to claim a man's rights, a man's place, and a man's destiny. Now, one of the things that characterises Daniel Deronda uh, is that he has tremendous empathy for other people, especially women. But he tries to understand his mother, and she tells him, well, she really tells him to piss off. Listen to this. I gather, this is Deronda, I gather my grandfather opposed your bent to be an artist. Though my own experience has been quite different, I enter into the painfulness of your struggle. I can imagine the hardship of an enforced renunciation. No, said the princess, shaking her head and folding her arms with an air of decision. You are not a woman. You may try, but you can never imagine what it is to have a man's force of genius in you and yet to suffer the slavery of being a girl. And George Eliot makes no comment on this, you know. I hope you're all shaking in your seats, because I certainly am. Anyway, um, to sum up, both women, Laura and Alcarizzi, are used as a measure to judge the men in front of them. Both women are confronted by men who imagine they love the unknown woman before them, but they find the limits of themselves and their own empathy. The women that they imagine is a fantasy of their own making. Deronda then chooses the safest option. He chooses a, a woman called Myra, the singer he eventually mar marries, who's the pattern of, subversive, of submissive femininity, and she's his helpmeet and his supporter. Now, Alcarizzi has the last word. 
and uh, you've got that on your sheets. It's the last passage. She says, I am not a loving woman, that is the truth. It is a talent to love, I lack it. Others have loved me, and I have acted their love. I know very well what love makes of men and women. It is subjection. It takes another for a larger self, enclosing this one. She pointed her own bosom. I was never willingly subject, subject to any man. Men have been subject to me. Now, Madame Law and Alcarisi could never, ever be the heroines of their respective novels. Had they occupied a central role, they would have been the villain and punished accordingly. And this is why they occupy only minor roles in the novels. Both women take advantage of the fact that they are known without being known. It gives them the upper hand in their respective encounters with the men who imagine they love them. And for me, they are George Eliot's warnings. And I love George Eliot for creating them and for giving them the freedom to achieve what they want, whatever the cost, and above all else for letting them go, unrepentant and unpunished. They come into the novels, say their piece as if they were standing on the stage, and then leave. Now, error may be willful, but it's always inadvertent, and neither Al Carisi and Madame Law are women who are women in error. They are liberated by purpose, ambition, intention. They are my women who meant to do it. Thank you very much.